Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Gray Viking Games. Check them out at grayvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT10 for 10% off. Hey everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today we're going to talk about drafting Black Green in Adventures of the Forgotten Realms. Uh, of course, a reminder for anyone who is a, a limited guru on our Patreon, now would be a great time to pull up the notes that I have uh, for this episode, getting right into, you know, standard things to look at. The overall win rate for Black Green over the last, like, two weeks on 17lands.com is around 55.1%, which is to say 0.1% below the overall win rate uh, for 17 lands users in that time period, which is to say it's basically an average performing uh, deck, um, or like it performs as well as one does just like with in the format as a whole. More decks are above that line than below that line, but it's, you know, about about average quality. Um, also, uh, that is a higher win rate than it had um, before that, like if you look at the, if you compare its win rate from the beginning of the format versus its win rate just in the last two weeks, it's trended upward. I suspect that's because everything except black red has likely trended upward and black red has trended downward as people have slowly began adjusting for black red to some extent. So that's, that's kind of the big picture. Like how good is this deck? As for like big picture strategy about what you're trying to do with black green, um, I think that this is very much like on the controlling end of the spectrum for the format. It's, you know, black green is typically mid range, but a lot of the most controlling decks in limited in general have kind of been like largely cut out of the format by how weak blue is. And um, by the fact that like blue isn't necessarily like better at card advantage than other colors in this format, since so much card advantage can be generated through like venturing and creatures that are cantrips and stuff. And then the blue cards that are actually card draw are so weak that blue just like doesn't have the same kind of like inevitability or like essential nature to playing like a control deck. So. What I've found is that black green generally has like an abundance of, uh, you know, value creatures plus good removal plus powerful expensive cards such that most of the time your opponent has like a lower curve, more aggressive deck. They're trying to kill you. You're trying to stay alive. And like if you've gotten to the point where you've both like played the cards in your hand and you're top decking, the black green deck is generally going to be favored against most opponents. Obviously, all of that, anytime you're talking about limited, is going to be, you know, largely a function of who has better rares in their deck rather than the overall positioning of the archetypes that they're playing. But all else equal, when it's coming down to commons and uncommons, uh, black green is looking to get to a long game and presume to be advantaged in those kinds of games. So what that means is that like Null Hunter might be a better card in the format than Underdark Basilisk. It's almost certainly much better in like red green, but Underdark Basilisk is better than Null Hunter in black green because you don't need to be finding a way to press damage. You need to be finding a way to stay alive. No one two death touches better at keeping you alive 
than a tutu that's trying to attack with a bunch of other creatures. And so like we can also see that like if we look at underdark basilisks, it's hard to compare win rates like of underdark basilisk in general versus underdark basilisk in black green because black green while it works better in in a lot of cases because black green wins about as much as the format in general you can avoid paying attention to like well does black green win more than like other decks that play underdark basilisk specifically if you just compare improvement when drawn of underdark basilisk in black green verse in the format as a whole. And there you'll see that like the improvement when drawn of under dark basilisk in a black green deck is a bit almost two percent higher than the improvement when drawn of under dark basilisk uh just in the format as a whole. So like that kind of data point is what supports my personal experience suggesting that uh can like cards that help you stay alive early are particularly central to what black green is doing and more important to draft more highly toward that end. I think the cards that you know are most important basically are removal spells. You are very good at uh, just you know playing creatures that have reasonable stats and can uh, prevent most creatures from attacking. But if you're playing a long game, your opponent's eventually going to play an evasive creature or just like a really good creature, maybe one at a higher commonality or well less common, you know, like a good rare, and uh, you'll need to have a removal spell. So. Prioritizing removal spells is important. So like Grim Bounty has a higher game in hand win rate than like Warlock class and Skullport Merchant in black in black green, even though that's not true in the format as a whole. Obviously, all of these numbers are like pretty close. Like Grim Bounty and Warlock class perform relatively similarly in the format in general versus black green in particular, but Grim Bounty has performed better than Warlock class in black green and not other black decks. Prioritize removal, and then second to prioritizing removal, prioritize creatures that are not necessarily looking to attack or good at keeping you alive or good at generating value. Vampire Spawn, for example, is the black common with the second highest win rate in black green over Grim Bounty. Um, it's actually the like common in the set with the second highest win rate after oh no sorry it's it's right behind owlbear so yeah like the the best commons in black green are uh grim bounty then owlbear then vampire spawn in my experience vampire spawn has felt really really like pivotal and essential to black green it's just so good at making sure that you're alive to cast your owlbear and as always we run into the issue where like owlbear and Elterguard ranger are pretty similar. Owlbear is quite a bit better in black green. Um, actually, the difference is bigger in black green than it has been in other uh, green decks that I've looked at. But you know, the there's a limit to how many five drops you want. Where like Vampire Spawn is kind of like the thing that can help get you there. So personally, prioritize it really, really highly. And then you know, Shambling Ghast is another example of the kind of card that can tr- contribute to staying alive to play your stuff. So like basically. On the attrition versus tempo end, this deck should be very, very far on the attrition side. You really never want to be in a space where you're thinking about your deck as trying to race. You are trying to like grind or overpower them or you know something other than kill them quickly. And uh, jumping ahead a little bit, I want to discuss... Shesra, Death's Whisper a little bit. That's the black, green, gold, uncommon. Um, two mana, one, three, force something to block. 
uh, end of turn, if something died, you can pay two life to draw a card. This card does not have a good win rate. In black-green, it uh, has a negative improvement when drawn, and uh, like wins you know, below the base win rate for the archetype. Basically, you know, all of my normal measures would su suggest that this is not a card you should put in your deck. I have had some good experiences with it uh, that were like quite good over a number of games, such that I've been convinced to kind of like unwrite off the card. I assumed just based on its numbers that I should never play it, and then I tried playing it in a deck that used it well, and it really overperformed. And I think that what's actually going on with Shastra is that it really, really needs you to be succeeding at the thing that Black Green is doing. It's a horrible card if you have to race, or if you are in a situation that's anything like a race, because you don't want to spend life to draw cards in a race, and you can't afford to play a 4-mana 1-3 in a race. But anytime you're playing a value game, the board's like gummed up, it just plays super, super well, like doing the thing that your deck should be trying to do, which is to say essentially that it's a good card in the best black-green decks. When you're when you like your deck in general is trying to make the game not a race, and if you're very good at successfully doing that, at making sure that the game actually isn't a race, then it's likely that Chester will play well. If your deck is weaker, you're more likely to have to play on your opponent's terms, and you're more like it's more likely that your opponent's gonna force you to race, and then Chester's gonna be bad. But if you have like all of the core parts that you're looking for to make sure that it's not a race. You have your like shambling guests into vampire spawns, into grim bounty and power word kill, maybe an Eltigard ranger to help like stabilize once you've killed off the important stuff. And then some like, you know, owlbears to start getting advantage. But you're, you're good at like making sure that you're playing the game you want to play, but maybe you're a little bit like, you know, if you're, if you're lacking in like, the kinds of bombs you might need to close a game in that spot, that's where Shasura can shine, is it can kind of like take over a game if you've done a good job of stabilizing and preserving your life total. Also, you want to make sure that you have a good number of ways to gain life to offset the life that it asks you to pay if you're really trying to get the most out of it. Obviously, you know, that could be some vampire spawns, some hill giant herd gorgers, but uh, it's really going to shine if you have cards like Prosperous Innkeeper and Reaper's Talisman um, that are cards that can gain kind of like an unbounded amount of life. If you're playing this long grindy game, they'll get you a lot more life over the course of the game than, you know, something like hill giant herd gorger would. It's going to give you a lot more opportunity to spend life to draw cards and then those cards to prolong the game to continue getting triggers out of your, like, you know, slower life gain enablers. Use sparingly. Make sure that you are very good at preserving your life total, but don't completely write Shesra off. Also, don't prioritize it. Shesra is not the only card in that space. Another really good example is uh, Deadly Dispute, which really I think the quality of Deadly Dispute hinges almost exclusively on the number of Shambling Ghasts and Grim Bounties you have. You really want a lot of Shambling Ghasts and Grim Bounties. I'm happy to play essentially any number of both of those cards. And if you have a lot of them, then uh, Deadly Dispute's awesome. Grim Bounty 
is trading one for one and giving you this like treasure that doesn't necessarily matter much. But you know, the more you're trading one for one and then enabling your like two man instance speed divination, the more like you want, you know, these things feed into each other. Card draw, likes for one for ones. And then, you know, shambling gas is kind of the same thing on a smaller scale. It buys you time and gives you like this little bit of value that can be hard to convert. And then Deadly Dispute makes it easy to convert. Also, Shambling Gas just lets you like cast Deadly Dispute early to hit land drops or something in a relatively non-painful way. If you don't have that stuff and uh, your early you know, plays are under Dark Basilisks and stuff where its value is very much from being on the battlefield and it's still relevant late game and everything, then it's likely that you don't want to play Grim Bounty and you'd be better served by something like a Fates Reversal in that. Uh, like role in your deck where it's kind of like a late game card advantage grindy kind of card you know if you're like i have just some like good defensive creatures and then maybe a couple copy like a couple really good rares or even just owl bears and um, vampire spawns or something that i'm going to get back with fates reversal i think fates reversal basically fates reversal and deadly dispute to me are really competing for similar spots in the deck and you need to have a good number of Shambling Ghasts plus Grim Bounties to get to the point where I would prefer Deadly Dispute to Fates Reversal in that role. I guess the other card that Fates Reversal uh, traditionally competes with is Feign Death. Um, Fates Reversal is, you know, slower, more value, but, you know, less tempo positive, uh, where, like, Feign Death is very tempo positive. In, like, the kind of blue-black deck that was trying to attack with Soul Knife Spy, Feign Death is a lot better than Fates Reversal because you, that deck was really struggling for tempo positive plays and they were really valuable in that deck. In Black Green, again, you are hoping to not be a deck that is where you're hoping that tempo is a relatively minimized feature of your deck. Therefore, you would prefer to play the kind of game where Fates Reversal is going to be the better card. But again, the less capable you are of making sure that that's what's happening, the less removal you have, uh, the worse your curve is, the fewer of those like really good premium defensive cards you have, the more you're going to want Feign Death instead of Fates Reversal because the more likely it is that you're going to be forced to play a tempo game and it might be important to like find ways to get some of those tempo positive elements into your deck. So that, that would be the use case for Feign Death in, you know, kind of this like, utility like not a creature not a removal spell type space in this deck and i think in almost all cases you're going to prefer a card like feign death or fates reversal or deadly dispute to a card like bull strength in green black because you really you know bull strength is largely about letting you push attacks and push extra damage with those attacks and that's not where you're expecting to be strategically with green black Let's talk about price of loyalty. <laughs> you might have thought that when we were talking about green black, we would get away from the price of loyalty discussion, but uh, not so much. Price of loyalty is a relevant card in this format for any black deck more than it is a relevant card in the format for any red deck. How good price of loyalty is, is really a function of how good you are at sacrificing the creature that you're stealing and Black is much better at doing that than red is, and anytime you're playing black in this format, it's likely that you can make treasures, which means that it's reasonable that you can consider splashing price of loyalty. Price of loyalty, when splashed in black-green, 
has the highest win rate of any common, better than Grim Bounty. Not only does it have the highest win rate of any common, it also, just as a random data point, has a higher win rate than Orcus in black green. Now, so that's saying, you know, either way you're splashing a red card, turns out you actually win more if you splash Price of Loyalty than if you splash Orcus, who's one of the best rares. So what's going on there? So does that mean you should generally try to splash it? No. Price of Loyalty is splashed into black green very rarely. It's been played in black green about half as much as Orcus has, to give you an idea of like how rarely people actually splash Price of Loyalty. So like basically any time you're playing black green and you see an Orcus, you're probably going to try to jump through some hoops to put it in your deck. Whereas people only put Price of Loyalty in their deck if they're a really good Price of Loyalty deck when they're black green. And so then we see it plays really well in those spots. I personally have uh, had an undefeated black green deck that splashed two price loyalties, and they were great. That was because I had at least three sack outlets, and I was in a ton of ways to tra uh, make treasures, and I was playing really long games, and it was just a great removal spell. You know, it's a minority of decks where that's true. You you need to have all those things come together. You need a lot of ways to make treasures. You need a lot of ways to sacrifice the creatures you're taking. You always want to look for whether you can do that in basically any black deck you're playing. But in green-black, it's really powerful, especially in this spot where your plan is to like have a large battlefield full of creatures where you have like all these big greed guys. It's pretty likely when you're playing that kind of game that price of loyalty is going to be a lot better than a removal spell. It's gonna you're gonna have a board where you both players have some big guys, and when you take their big guy, you can attack with that and your other big guys, and it's often going to be you know game swinging. Not that's not going to happen so often that you want to play price of loyalty without sack outlets to try to like find yourself in that spot. But it is to say that like once you're playing price loyalty because you have those sack outlets, you're going to find you know some other cases where it just wins the game for price loyalty reasons, which is you know obviously a factor in why price loyalty's win rate is so high in the format in general. Use sparingly, but certainly look for opportunities to splash price of loyalty. And then like the fact that splashing price is so good, if you use it well, is one of those things that should, like one of the reasons that it's good to early on <clears throat> prioritize the shambling gaps that are going to let you prioritize the deadly disputes that are going to let you cash in on those late price of loyalties that you see. And so even though like shambling gas and deadly dispute independently don't have especially like impressive win rates in black green. I value them early above their win rate because of the amount of flexibility that they offer. Their cheap plays make they give you a lot of consistency. They let you splash, they let you take advantage of particular splashes like price of loyalty that you otherwise wouldn't be positioned to do. So where, you know, a card like price of loyalty, I am going to draft lower than its win rate because it restricts my deck or requires restricts certain picks where I have to like take a pick later that's going to give me the sack outlet that I need for it. When you take uh, cards like Shambling, Gast, and Deadly Dispute that increase your flexibility, allow you to cast more different cards, allow you to take advantage of more different kinds of cards, there's like the opposite thing is happening. They're increasing rather than decreasing optionality later, and that's valuable rather than the cost. So they should be drafted early on ahead of their win rate rather than behind their win rate. So that's that's always something you want to look at when you're, you know, in the 
like, oh, which of these cards has a higher win rate? I should draft it mentality. You want to pay attention to one of the factors in terms of like, well, when should I take a lower win rate card is, does one of these cards increase while the other one decreases my optionality further, you know, moving forward in the draft? Does one of them have more colored mana symbols on it? Uh, does one of them share color with more or fewer of my cards? Does one of them have synergies with a larger or smaller number of other cards in the set, etc. Black and green both have venturing as a thing that they can do, though it's not a very high like priority for green cards. Like there are rare and uncommon green cards that are very good at venturing, like Wandering Troubadour and Varus, but the common green venture cards, I believe, um, offhand, I'm thinking it's just the enchant land that you shouldn't put in your deck. That means that, like, black obviously has a lot of venturing, but green is only supporting you with a few of these, like, uncommons and rares that venture multiple times. It's not helping you at common very much, which means that venturing is more likely to be kind of like a sub-theme of your deck than something central to your strategy, the way that it is in black-white. You can use it as, as a way to get more of this instant card advantage that you're looking for in your deck, but it's not central to your game plan, and you shouldn't generally be expecting that you're completing a lot of dungeons and stuff. Not that there are really payoffs for doing that in these colors outside of, like, Eliwick, exactly. And I guess uh, Dungeon Crawler, who also mentioned, is probably not at its best in this archetype. You're not really trying to attack with your 2-1. The 2-1 doesn't block especially well, since it's not coming back. I do like early plays that can trade up, but yeah, I, I guess Varus also has a payoff for completing dungeons. But the green cards that care about completing dungeons basically let you do it by themselves. I, I would generally prioritize cheap things that are not dungeon crawler over dungeon crawler as an example. Um, so, is there anything I haven't touched on? The good uncommons are good uncommons. The good rares are good rares. We're late enough in the format that I mostly expect people know what they are you know again i mentioned that uh like the removal is particularly important so cards like hunter's mark and ray of enfeeblement end up with higher win rates in this archetype and then like wandering troubadour and owlbear reaper's talisman is good in that it gives you like life gain which the deck is looking for not at its best in that it's a little bit more on the racing side of things than you're necessarily looking for i think that basically covers the lecture so we're going to turn it over to twitch chat so um anyone who has any questions please hit me with those now while i'm waiting for people to um, come up with those and write them for me i do want to thank our new patrons this week at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes so thanks to travis daniel jacob and fnm world champion really appreciate the support from all of you and let's see first question all right. Given that black green is a, is a nutrition based archetype, what are the best tools in black green to win a long game against decks like green white, uh, which on the surface would appear to have stronger synergies? I think that that's exactly the right way to look at it. Green white is also trying to like play like green white has like these aggressive starts, but if green white is like bricked, it's generally really happy with that. It's like, sweet, let's just chill and I'm going to gain life and my guys are going to get bigger and I'll beat you later. And so the guys in green-white definitely outscale the creatures in green-black, which is precisely why 
the removal is so important to Green Black and why you really like why we see Grim Bounty mattering more than the good uncommons, because it's so important to be able to take apart the synergies in the decks that are more synergistic than you, or you will absolutely lose to decks like Green White going long. I think the matchups against uh between like Green White and Green Black are pretty sweet. Green White's like starts with smaller guys, but they scale. Black Green is trying to like kill them off. Green White might have like cleric class to bring them back. And there's kind of just like a lot of back and forth in terms of like, you know, who needs to be attacking when and who has inevitability as a function of like how much can Green White, you know, keep their engine in place versus how much can uh, Black Green disrupt their engine. It's really like a classic battle of late game large boards versus late game small. Like Green White is trying to play a big game. It wants you to both have a lot of permanents that are just staring at each other. And, you know, if nobody has any removal, green-white's going to win the game. Whereas black-green wants to be playing small games. It wants to trade off cards as much as possible so that its cantrips are beating you. And, like, it can grind you down and you can't assemble your synergies. Your cards need to, like, just go head-to-head. You know, in that world, they might manage to, like, force you to trade your, uh, like, unicorn with their clattering skeletons. And that's not like a great trade, but they got a little bit of value off that adventure. And just that kind of little incremental, you know, favorable exchange combined with the fact that, you know, they're just trying to play a little bit more of the top end stuff. Like when I draft green-white personally, I try to play like my best green-white decks don't play four and five and six mana cards. They have, uh, like, Cleric and Druid class and um, Ranger's Hawk type cards as mana sinks, but then they have a super low curve so that I can focus on cheap life gain enablers and payoffs. So, like, I don't really try to put Owlbear in my green-white deck. Like, sometimes I have an Owlbear in my deck because it's a strong card and I'm playing green and I get it and I play it, but my best decks don't have it. Whereas, like, I want a lot of Owlbears in green-black because I do want those kind of like standalone cards that are going to like win if I trade off a lot. Yeah, that, that the answer fundamentally is certainly lean on removal. Next question, how important do I feel disenchant effects in black green are? are uh, is equipment a problem? I mean, if, if the question here is, should I play You Find a Cursed Idol? The answer is no. You Find a Cursed Idol is bad enough that I forgot about it when I was talking about green ways to venture at common. And so that means you're not really going to be able to kill equipment. It's fine, you know, like, if you, if you happen to have a Beholder and you put it in your deck and that lets you kill class, uh, like, enchantments sometimes, that's cool, but it's not essential. And, like, in general, I, you know, it, it is possible to, like, lose to an equipment that lets, like, red-white trade up all of their random bad creatures for your better creatures, and they can like kind of grind you grind you out that way or whatever. But for the most part, I think the way that you're trying to beat removal or beat equipment is just, you know, kill their thing or play a thing that's big enough that their small guys with equipment doesn't matter. And you can also like start, you know, racing back and pressuring them without too much trouble. And also the equipment in the format's just not very good, and the decks that are based on it aren't very successful. And, like, a pretty small portion of your opponents are, like, red-white equipment decks. There are cards you're going to lose to sometimes, every now and then, that might be plate mail. It's not worth, like, 
playing bad cards to stop it, and there aren't like good cards that you naturally want to put in your deck that let you. So you know, figure it out when you're playing against it, but don't go out of your way to like prepare for it. <laughs> Next question: Can I enthusiastically agree and elaborate about how absurd Warlock class is? Uh, Warlock class is super good. That's just fundamentally true in any black deck. It's just a powerful card. It makes it really easy to close a game with minimum effort. Black green is playing long enough games that it'll, you know, turn on, and then you don't have to like try to figure out how to kill your opponent. They just kind of die. Like I, you know, warlock class ends up being in like kind of the Shastra role where it's not the thing that makes sure that you're playing the game that you want to play. But once you're playing that sort of game, it makes sure that you are actually winning eventually. And then obviously it's a much better card than Shastra because its fail state is, you know, like I spent some mana and my card replaced itself um, in a way that wasn't particularly bad. Warlock class is great. It's not really exceptionally great in black green. It's just a great card overall. The next question is how good is Purple Worm in black green? Purple Worm, so I, I mentioned and I think it was green-white, uh, maybe green-blue. I mean, really, everywhere except black-green, I think Purple Worm is pretty bad. I think Purple Worm is pretty good in black-green. You're a lot more likely to be able to force a trade one way or another. Well, you're, you're a lot more likely to be able to play it for not very much mana. Either you attack with, like, a Yonti Fangblade, which your opponent feels compelled to block, or you sacrifice something to a ghoul, or whatever. Like, the deck, the deck can enable, make sure something dies pretty well. And on the rare case that you can't find a way to do that, you also just play longer games where it having a prohibitive casting cost is less likely to be a problem. This is definitely the best home for uh, Purple Worm. And it, it ends up, um, as, far, as far as what that means overall, like Purple Worm has a 55.8 game in hand win rate compared to the deck overall having a 55.1 game in hand win rate. So it's, you know, like better than average, but not like super exceptional. Next question, is Shestra ever a reason to move into black green or just a bonus for already being the archetype? Yeah, it's definitely not a reason to move into black green. It's It's really like... And it's not even always a bonus for being the archetype. I'm sure there are many black-green decks that would not play Shastra if they had it. It's only good in some black-green decks that are, you know, as I mentioned, already really good at making sure that they can avoid a race and have lots of ways to gain life, have good removal so that they can, you know, keep killing your opponent's stuff and drawing cards when, like, there aren't useful attacks to make and stuff like that. There are very rarely decks that are not black green that might want Shastra as a splash. I think that some some decks that are black or green and can use Shastra well because they're in this for the same reason that black green can use it well might want to splash it, but they they would only do that if it were an easy splash and it wouldn't be a reason to like pivot into black green. It would just be like, okay, I, I can splash this, you know, thing as like a high impact card like even if it's not great sometimes it like it can be worth a splash even though it has a low win rate because it can be very high impact when you're the right strategy for it and when your deck is constructed to use it next question how are you feeling about green dragon structurally black green in general is pretty interested in 
flyers, um, particularly large flyers that can block other flying creatures because black green doesn't have a lot of flyers. And um, when you're trying to play a long game, sometimes you get killed because your opponent has a flying creature that you can't block. Unfortunately, green dragon is awful. <laughs> so it's just not the right way to have to do it. If you're getting beat up by a flyer, you would rather just, you know, have a removal spell or something or uh, like an Elder Guard Ranger. And, you know, if, if I were at the point where I were like so desperate that I had to play like Green Dragon to be able to block flyers, I would probably rather just play like the green equipment that gives plus two plus one in reach, which I assume you can just always have if you want it because no one else does. Um, I would not be looking to put Green Dragon in any of my decks. It's just too much mana for the size. I think, unless there are any any uh, last-minute questions, um, that we, uh, we're going to wrap this up. So thanks for hanging out, everyone. Um, next week. So the two archetypes that I have not covered right now are Red, White, and Blue, White. Blue-white was left off of the poll inadvertently this week, so I'm trying to decide if it's better to uh, offer the poll again just as normal or to just give it to blue-white this week because it didn't have an uh, opportunity last week. Um, I would hope that whether I do the poll or not, the outcome would be uh, blue-white. I, I think it's a more interesting deck that I personally have had more success with and have more to say about. So I'm, I'm likely to just uh, talk about Blue White next week, but I, I, I might decide that um, on principle I need to offer a poll. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, Blue White, for anyone who's wondering, is the least successful archetype on 17 lands in the format, but one of the archetypes that I personally have had the most success with. So I'm pretty excited to talk about it, and I hope everyone else is excited to tune into the next episode and hear about it. With that, I will uh, wrap this up and you can hear from me about next about that. Prepare for speed.